You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning, church. Let me get my splattering of papers that I probably won't use, but they're here just in case. I um, just want to say thanks to Gary and Lori for being here and for sharing a little bit of their story. The, the chain reaction of changed lives, I'm going to remember that. That's important. And, and they should not retire because Gary has more energy than I do. He's up here bouncing around and the fire is still there, so I'm thankful they're, they're continuing on making disciples. And the encouraging thing that I hear in, in their story and others who come and share what's going on around the world and even in our city is that God is, God is doing a work. And if his, if his people are faithful, if we're sharing the love of God, if we're willing to go out and make disciples, if we're willing to bring God glory in all that we do, if that's our goal, if that's our aim, if we're on mission, if we're purposeful about that, then he does the work. He changes lives. Just like yours and mine, our lives were changed at some point because of someone else speaking God's truth to us. So I'm thankful for that. We have a fellowship lunch right after the service. Um, items in the picture may not appear on the actual table, but <laughs> that is an example for you. We're going to have a, a nice lunch together, fellowship together, and then Gary and Lori will be able to share some more about their ministry, answer some questions. I just get to know this couple a little bit better. So please, even if you didn't bring anything, stay after. Uh, We'll be putting tables out right after the service and gathering for some food and fellowship. So we ask you would stay for that. Um, I'd like to dismiss the chapel kids to their ministry. Your teacher is in the back. So um, it's a ministry for our three-year-olds through, what, fourth, fourth grade? Something, I don't know. It changes occasionally, depending on who's here. Our young ones, you guys enjoy your time in God's word, and we'll see you in a bit. Let me pray for us as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you're our Father, and you're in heaven, and you're sovereign, and you're good, and you're perfect in every way, and you're holy. You are eternal. You have no beginning and no end. You are other So there's no one else, Lord, we can trust. There's no one else that we can look to to save, to help. Where does our help come from, Lord? It's only you, Father. We know that. And and yet, Lord, we still wander sometimes in this world. We, We veer off the path you've given us. We look to other things to satisfy, and we are consistently disappointed. They come up short again and again because they're not of you. We... We need your help, Lord, in every possible way. And so coming this morning, many of us have burdens. We're distracted. We are overwhelmed. We are looking for help. And maybe our voices have gone silent. We have um, not been crying out to you the way we used to. We've allowed our disappointment to overcome us. We feel crushed and under the weight of the fallenness around us, Lord. And and Lord, so we, we, we open our voices now. We ask for help. We ask you would speak, that you would 
Help us that you would, by your truth, sanctify us. You would make us holy as you are holy, Lord. You would give us perspective this morning. You would encourage us. You would feed us. You would sustain us, Lord. You would satisfy us in the only way that you can. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill us and help us to hear from you and to understand your word and ultimately, Lord, to obey, to apply it to our lives. And that is the work that you do. Ultimately, Lord, we ask for your help to bring you glory, for that is our purpose. That's why we're here to bring you glory, to be image bearers of you. So Lord, we ask your mercy as we open your word. Uh, help me to speak. Help me to hear from you and to say only things that need to be said. Thank you for your people. Thank you that we can gather, that we have the freedom to do that, and we can lift up your name. And we're just so thankful to be your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we read our text, we'll be in uh, Exodus chapter 24. And we've been, we've been moving through Exodus for a little while now. It's been close to a year, maybe. I don't even, I haven't looked back, so. Um, but it's been a while, and we've seen some amazing things. We've seen God introduce himself to his people. Um, we've seen God introduce himself to the enemies of his people, to Egypt, and, and with all the plagues and the, um, really, which were victory over the, the gods of Egypt, the false gods that other nations had worshipped that even Israel was aware of and potentially worshipped themselves at one time or another during their captivity. God was making uh, very clear that he's the one true God. He's the only one that's worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of praise and that he will share his glory with no one. So God made that abundantly clear. And because of his promise made to Abraham, because of his promise that he made in his own eternal covenant with himself, he chose to save this people and bring them out of Egypt. And we see all the foreshadowing of, of, the, of the Christ to come, the salvation that we enjoy now because of Jesus' blood. We see all of this in Exodus. It should awaken all of the realities of sin and the nature of sin and the realities of God's holiness and who he is. And it should help us to see more clearly the divide that exists between a holy God and sinful man. And that only God can make a way. He's the initiator of all these things. And, and God makes a way for his people. He saves them. They could not save themselves. They had to cry out to him when they were in captivity. And so he saves them and he's bringing them out and he, he has brought them out and he's brought them from death to life. They've crossed over on dry land through the Red Sea and the army of Egypt was, was crushed. And now he is sanctifying his people as they, as they move through the desert toward the promised land. This is the land flowing with milk and honey where he will be their God and they will be his people. This is the promise that God has initiated. And this is the promise which the people are learning about and they are they are beginning to come in covenant with him as he shares his law. He is their king. They are his subjects. This is how they are to live in his kingdom. And so we've been watching, we've been working through the law, the Ten Commandments, and then we've been looking at really the law applied, all the case law of how to, how to deal with certain situations in life, whether it's issues of mercy or restitution or social justice for the disadvantaged and the, the defenseless and the Sabbath and festivals and, and then God making his promises to give them victory when they get to the promised land, right? He will, he will protect them. He will purge their enemies and he will prepare a place for them as we learned last week. And so that's all coming up and, and being kind of culminated in chapter 24, kind of a hinge, a pivotal point in this story because now the covenant, which has been 
provided for them and, and, and declared to them is going to be it's going to be confirmed. It's going to be ratified. They're going to enter into this covenant with God. And it's a covenant that is confirmed and ratified by blood. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And so as I was studying this and, and reading through this chapter again and again, and it's, it's pretty clear what's going on. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll describe some things that are taking place. But ultimately, um, it led me to read through the book of Hebrews um, so I, I spent much of my week just reading through Hebrews because there's a, there's a great connection there. Hebrews references back to this section in Exodus 24, but ultimately we're looking at Jesus Christ as a better mediator than Moses, as a, as a better high priest, right? as a better sacrifice. Jesus himself takes the place and of all that we see here, it's, it's all embodied in him. It all points to him. And so we'll, we'll take a look a little bit with that connection. But as I'm even reading through that, I'm, I'm okay, Lord, this is, this is Old Testament, Old Covenant. And yes, it points to, to Jesus and there's a new covenant in blood and his blood. And we celebrate that as we celebrate communion every month. And there's some good connections there. And I think many, many of us know that as, as his people. And, um, but, but what else do we need to hear this morning? And I, I get to the end of um, Hebrews and 13 and and I see this, this, this term about the eternal covenant. This covenant that God is making with his people and the covenant that he's made with us through Jesus Christ, he made with himself first in eternity past. This is an eternal covenant. So once you get there, then you got to spend some time thinking about that. <laughs> it's a little bit deep. It's a little bit heavy. Like, what, what, is that, what does that mean? Like, why would you do that? Like, what's... What's the purpose of that? And ultimately, it's to bring him glory, right? If you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which many of you know the first question and the one that's asked often, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are to bring God glory. We're image bearers of God. Sin has marred that image. It's distorted that image, but Jesus Christ has redeemed and has restored those things to himself. And so now we are being conformed in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And by doing that, we bring God glory and we enjoy God forever. And so as I'm sitting at coffee shops and I'm stuck in traffic at the next red light and the next red light, and I'm, doing that, and I'm thinking, is this really it, Lord? Is this just a tough week? Many of us have those, and I don't know about your week. It was a really difficult week for me. Some weeks are a little easier. Sometimes it's a little easier to step up here and to, and to say praise God and to, and to sing songs and to lift my voice. Some days it's easier than others. And this morning it was not easy. And this weekend it really wasn't easy. And... Honestly, just as many of us do, we believe lies, right? That we're not good enough, that we're going to fail yet again. You can keep trying, but you're not going to make it, right? And some of us, we did that this morning. We looked in the mirror and we just, we're like, you again, right? Even after a few cups of coffee, it doesn't help very much. We're disappointed. We're discouraged. <laughs> we walk with our heads down. We want to hear from God so badly, and yet... We feel like sometimes we can't hear anything. And so those lies perpetuate, and they, they want us to veer off course. Satan wants to veer us off course. He wants to kill. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy what God is doing. We have a real enemy. Right? We know our, our, our fight's not against flesh and blood. 
We know it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, right? The authorities, the powers, the principalities, we know this, and they're working behind the scenes, but we continue to give ourselves to them because we're not consistently in God's word. We're not consistently in prayer. And then we wonder what happened. Why am I way over there when the tide of the culture and the world around us just cause us to drift because we let ourselves. We're not grounded. We don't have a home base. And so I had that kind of a week where it just felt difficult, impossible. Why am I here? Lord, why? Like, what is the point? And I come back to this. What is, why am I here? What's the purpose of everything? Yeah, I have to work. Yeah, I have to got to take care of our kids. We got sports. We got to, we got to go grocery shopping. I got to get gas. I've got to do things. I've got to live. He's provided all these things. They're all good. But they're not necessarily bad. But when we get bound up in them, when we lose our focus, when our head is down, just trying to get through and get by and survive, eventually we get worn out and we wonder again why. And is anything that I'm doing today bringing you glory, Father? Have I brought you glory in anything I've done? Or have I just complained? Have I been grateful for anything you've given? Or have I just crumbled against you? Am I enjoying God at all? So as I read this text and consider what God is doing for his people and what he's doing for us ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, it just, it started to, to make sense. And this wasn't until really yesterday and even then, as I understood and God was providing a glimpse as to his, his goodness and his grace and his mercy, then I felt crushed under the weight of my sin. I felt ashamed that I have wasted so much time, that I have given myself so much to this world. God wants fellowship with us. He has made a way through Jesus Christ to have fellowship with us. The eternal God, the God of the entire universe, the holy God, made a covenant with himself in eternity past to love me and to save me and to have fellowship with me. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, he's done the same for you. The eternal God, the holy God, the creator God, made a covenant with himself to love you, to be with you forever. That changes things a little bit in the course of my, my day, right? It, it, it brings me under the weight of seriousness of my sin. It helps me to understand the incredible incredible work of Christ on the cross. My gratitude, my level. And here, here was my prayer a few days ago. Lord, I just, I, I, want, I just want more. Like, is this, I, I feel like I'm not growing the way that I should be. I'm just not thankful like I used to be, Lord. I feel like I'm just going through my day. I just want, why am I not growing the way that I should? Why am I not moving forward and progressing in, in, in my faith the way that I would like to, Lord? Why am I just, feel like I've plateaued? We've all had that, right? When, whether it's exercise or whatever, you kind, of, you kind of plateau, you work hard, and then all of a sudden, the gains just stop, and you wonder, what's going on? And you have to ask that question, what do I do different? And I asked the Lord, what's, what do I need to do different, Lord? And he brought me back to, to, to the beginning. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? that I'm an image bearer of God and through Jesus Christ, I am to bring him glory in this world and I'm in to enjoy him forever. I, and I thought about it, when's the last time I just sat and enjoyed my time with God? When's the last time you sat and just enjoyed your time with the Lord? When's the last time you didn't just rush through a prayer before a meal, but you actually sat there and enjoyed a meal with the Lord and the food that he's provided and the nourishment and When's the last time we just talked to him about everything in our life, in our day? When did, when's the last time we just walked with him and abided with him and remained in him versus just coming and going as we need stuff? <clears throat> 
And so as the hinge point in this story, it was kind of a pivotal moment for me this week. And so uh, I'm going to read through this and just share a few thoughts. Um, and I, and I, my prayer is that for them, any of you experiencing similar things, um, why, why am I not progressing? You would consider the beginning. You would consider why you're here. That, that everything we are, we are supposed to be doing is to bring glory to God. And instead, we get caught up in the world, we get caught up in busyness, and everything we end up doing is to what? Is just for ourselves. It's to, it's to bring glory to ourselves. And instead of having this deep fellowship, God has made a way for this deep fellowship with him, we turn our backs and instead have fellowship with the world. And it never satisfies. And it leaves us frustrated. It leaves the church really off track. We don't have a witness then because we are no different. So let's read chapter 24 together, if you have your Bibles, and see what God has to say to us. I might stop along the way. Um, I've given up trying to outline this in a structured manner. This is just going to come out at you. So receive as you're able. Chapter 24. Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So what we see right here in the first section, God is inviting his people, he's inviting Moses and some of the leaders to come to him. He's inviting them. He's initiating, once again, just as he had in eternity past, God is initiating all of this, right? He initiated the covenant with them. You, don't, you didn't see when God brought them out of Egypt, you didn't see Israel go up to God and say, Lord, I get, we got some rules we'd like to write down just because we're, we're kind of screw-ups and we know that. And so if you would help us, because I, I like to carve wooden things and then I just happen to worship it all the time. I don't know why, Lord, but could you make a couple commandments related to that? Israel didn't do this. They didn't initiate any of this. With That would be kind of strange, right? If my sons came to me, and they're in the front row, which is amazing. Hey guys. If my sons came to me and said, Dad, you know, I have a propensity to watch too much TV, and I've been, you know, I, sometimes I lie, and I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit mean to, to, to you and Mom, or whatever. So I'd like, I've got a set of rules here. I've got some punishments for you to look over. I'd like you to consider establishing those in the home. And there would be stunned silence and disbelief and looking for the angle and... It doesn't happen, right? God's the initiator. He's the one that's coming into this and saying, you are my people. I have covenanted with you to do these things and to be my subjects. And I've covenanted with myself before you were even born to make this happen. And so his promises will stand. And he's made this covenant. He's made these laws. Why? Because they're good, because he is good. And he wants them to be perfect as he is perfect. And he's holy. And he, he needs a people that are holy. And so he provides um, this means for them, and he wants them to come up. And he, he has the blueprint of the tabernacle already here, the blueprint of how he will dwell with his people. And we're going to talk about that as we move on in some of the, the next chapters here. But God's going to dwell with his people, and he's providing a means. So the mountain, Mount Sinai, is kind of a blueprint for that. The people, the, most of the people are going to stay in the outer court. They're going to stay back, right? And then you guys can come up to the holy place, which is, which is a little, you're still going to worship from afar, but come, come to me. And, and he brings Aaron and, and the other two, Nadab and Abihu, are Aaron's sons. So this is the beginnings of the priesthood, the high priests, right? 
And he brings the, the 70 elders of Israel, the representatives of the people. And, and he says, but you guys, you can't come all the way up. Only Moses, only the mediator can come all the way into the Holy of Holies. And I will, I will talk with him Then he will be your intercessor. So we see the blueprint of the tabernacle already on the mountain. And as God calls his people up, and I love that he calls them up. He wants, he's a personal God. All the other gods of Egypt, what did they do? You kept feeding them, you kept carving them, you kept worshiping, bowing down, and maybe they would give you good crops, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they'd be mad at you, maybe they wouldn't, right? There was no personal aspect there. There was no true relationship and desire to fellowship. There was authoritative rule. There was fear. There was no life there. There was just death. And yet this is a God of, of fellowship. He wants, to, he wants his people to be with him. He's made them to be image bearers, to be a light to the rest of the world, a light to the nations. Verse three, and so before they go up, though, some work needs to be done. And Moses came and told the people all of the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And this is very optimistic on the, on the part of God's people. All the words that the Lord has spoken, that we will do. But God knows that they can't keep this perfectly and that they won't. And he's making provision for that because he's gracious and merciful. And it's, 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 it's the fallacy of the Old Testament God that he's just fire brimstone and he's, he's different than the New Testament God. He's the same God. He does not change. So Moses came and told all the words, all the, the words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws that were provided, and all the people in one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So we see Moses is not just the oral tradition that we always think about, but he actually wrote things down so that they would have it, so they would know what God said. And what did Moses do next? He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And 12 pillars. We talked about breaking down pillars to false gods last week. Right? But this time we're building up spiritual stones, places of worship, pillars to the Lord, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These young men were presumably the, the consecrated firstborn of Israel, and they were to kind of usher in or hold the place of the Levit- Levitical priesthood that was to come. And so they are they're offering burnt offerings, and burnt offering is, the whole offering is burnt and offered to the Lord. There's nothing left, right? Peace offerings to the Lord, they're, they're also called fellowship offerings. So they would, they would offer an animal to the Lord, they would offer some of the choice fat to the Lord to be burnt to ash, but the rest of the food would actually be eaten and consumed by the people in fellowship with God. There has been peace with God through the sacrifice, through blood, and so now there's a fellowship with God through this peace offering. And so... The covenant has been spoken out loud. The people have heard it. They have agreed to it. So now, it's, now they ratify it. They seal it with blood. And Moses took half the blood from these sacrifices and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. So he took half the blood and he threw it against the altar. And what does the blood on the altar signify? It signifies a sacrifice, right? The atonement for the sins of God's people. This is the provision. This is how God makes a way for without, without sacrifice, right? Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We know this from Hebrews. Because if we know our story, we know Genesis, we know that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our, our role was to be image bearers, to bring God glory. And we have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We do not bring him glory anymore. We rebel against him. So God is making a way for his people. And so by the blood of the sacrifice, because something... Someone has to die. The wages of sin is death. 
So either I'm going to pay for my sin by the wrath of God through my own blood or someone else's. And praise, praise God that Jesus Christ died for our sins once and for all. He took my sins upon himself, your sins upon himself. He hung on a cross. He bled. He died. The perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice once for all. And if we put our faith in him, put our faith in the blood of Jesus, we're saved. The wrath of God passes over us. The righteousness of Christ is put in our account. And so we are justified before a holy God. All these big theological terms start to come into play, right? They, they start to come together. And we see, this, we see this happening now. The blood has been thrown against the altar. And then what did he do? He took the book of the covenants and he read it. Now he already spoke it. Now he's reading it again. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the blood on the altar symbolizes God's forgiveness and acceptance of this offering. And the blood on the people points to this oath, this binding this covenant binding ratification, confirmation between God and his people. And so God is calling Moses and the representatives of Israel to come near, but before they can do that, God has to make a way. And he does so through blood, through the blood of the covenant, because we're separated by sin and we need to be atoned for through the blood of the covenant. So the sins are covered now and and the sacrificial system essentially is, is underway And so now they can move in and have fellowship with God. So verse nine, and this is amazing. This is where I sat for a while too. How how did this happen? Then Moses and Aaron and Adab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up as they were called to do. But now there's provision for them to move closer. Remember before this, they couldn't even touch the mountain, right? They couldn't couldn't even come near it. They had the the tape up. They lost a few dogs, a few streaks, whatever. Because this is dangerous. God is holy and they are sinful. And there's a great divide. And he's called them to come up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. An incredible picture. They saw the God of Israel. They beheld him. And so did they actually... See God because God is spirit. He has no form. Can they actually? No one can see God without dying. God has said and continues to say throughout the Scripture. Um, Wearsby has a has a, a take on a good take on this. He said this doesn't mean they beheld God in His essential being, for this is impossible. And he quotes John one eighteen, and I've got some others here. Uh, John one eighteen. No one has ever seen God. The only God or the only Son who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, so Jesus Christ is the full embodiment of God. So we've, he has been seen, he's been revealed, but no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we, we have a pretty clear picture that God cannot be seen, who dwells in unapproachable light. And so the first thing that comes to mind is if you've ever driven anywhere east to west in Colorado Springs, either um, when the sun is rising in the morning or when the sun is setting in the evening, you're completely blind, right? You've, you've seen, I mean, you can have sunglasses, visor, you're trying to like do this thing, is the light green or red? I know there's a light there. You're just trying to make out things. 
so you don't hit things that are going across, right? Whether it's an animal, a person, a bike, a car, you're just trying to figure out what's going on. So you know things are there that's like that, and you're just trying to get through because the light is just, it's, it's incredible. It's blinding. You can't, you can't see very well. And so when, when we get this description of what they actually saw, this quote by Wearsby makes sense. It's, it's God, uh, they beheld God in his essential being. Uh, he says they saw some of God's glory and they probably saw the throne of God on sapphire pavement. And we'll, we'll go into Ezekiel 1 and look at that in a moment. But the invisible, the invisible God was hidden from them. God in all his glory, and all his essence, he did not reveal himself completely to the people. And, and look at what they describe. So if they actually, if you actually saw God, what would you describe, right? They couldn't describe much. There was under his feet. So maybe they got a glimpse of feet, they think. Under his feet, as it were, meaning maybe, likeness, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. They're trying to explain this. So as much as we can't imagine what it's like to behold God, what it would be like to see God in this situation or context. They can't even describe it, really, right? It's tough to describe. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 1, he's given a vision by God, and yet he's still trying to understand and describe things using a lot of like and maybe, and I think it looks like this, but how do you describe heavenly things? How do you describe the things of God? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, and then we'll jump over to verse 22, he said, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and a fire flashing forth continually. In the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And then he goes on to describe these angelic creatures that are bringing glory to God and attending to God. And verse 22, he says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight toward one another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And, and when, when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. Try, you see the grasping for what is this like? How do I describe this in human terms? Because it's, it's not... It's not from us, it's from the divine. How do, I, how do we describe these things? So he's using the best that he can to figure it out. Verse 26, and, the, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. So very similar imagery. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, so we, don't, we still don't know what part of the body we're talking about. Right? We, it's, it could be, we're just, we just can't figure out the description's too, too much for Ezekiel. And at the end, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So we, we have a similar situation going on here where God is revealing himself, showing himself. They beheld God, but ultimately they could make out some feet, maybe some pavement. That's pretty much where they got. Because if you're in the presence of a holy God, you're probably looking down, you're probably worshiping. If you try to lift up your head, it's a little bit bright, you're making out some things. And this just shows us the holiness of our God, right? That this is the best we got for his description of what it was like to behold God. We've got feet and pavement, that's it. But the other thing that was key here that's different, that is in the text, verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He didn't lay his hand. He didn't kill them. Why? Their sins have been atoned for. God has made a way. He's made provision. They beheld God. <clears throat> Look at this beautiful picture. 
<clears throat> they ate and they drank. They ate and they drank. Now, I don't know where they got the food, whether God provided, whether this was part of that fellowship peace offering um, that, they, that they brought up with them that just took place. Possibly, God, did God provide food miraculously and drink? I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but they ate. And they, can you imagine that? As much as this will be great, and I'm not going to downplay the amazing, majestic glory of our fellowship lunches here at Black Forest Chapel, um, the meatballs, Gable attests to, are amazing. And so there, there's, some, there's some of God's blessing and, and um, truly in, in the food that's created. And you guys are great at, at bringing food, um, making food. We're, I'm great at bringing a bag of chips occasionally, that kind of thing. We all have our contribution. But that's nothing compared to being in the presence, beholding God on the mountain, right? That God has made a way and he wants to eat and drink with them. They ate and they drank. That's... The fact that in the midst of all of this, that, that in the midst of the glory of God on this mountain, this, this devouring fire, this consuming fire that's taking place, this amazing light show, the shaking of the mountain, the clouds, all the stuff that's taking place, the, 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 the seriousness of the law, this holy God and sinful man and their predicament, and God's making a way and he's pointing toward his son that is to come. In the midst of all of this, God wants us to sit and eat and drink with him. Isn't, that's incredible. And we are in such a hurry, and we're, we're missing out on this fellowship with God, bringing glory to him, enjoying him now. And honestly, this idea of fellowship, this meal, this fellowship with God is, is a little bit too important to pass up. So um, I had this tag, but I wasn't sure as we get to it. Um, in Revelation chapter 3, we see Jesus providing uh, instruction to John, he's, he's writing letters to the various churches, and he's talking to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, and there's a component here of, of fellowship and eating, and so I just, I just want to touch on this a little bit before we move on from that section. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot meaning there's this hot water is useful, cold water is useful, lukewarm things are not as useful. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What does this sound like? It sounds like many of the churches in America. It sounds like many of the affluent congregations that come together, and maybe initially with good intention, maybe with some desire of hoping of growing, but ultimately many of us say, I don't need you, Lord. You've made a way for me to have fellowship with you. You've made a way for me to commune with you, to speak with you, to talk with you, to walk with you, to enjoy you, to bring you glory. You've made this way through the sacrifice of your son. You've done all this work. You've saved me from, from the pit of hell. You've saved me from this eternal death, separation from you forever. You saved me from my sin. Now I can have fellowship with you forever. I'm your son. I'm your, I'm your daughter. I'm, I have this great inheritance. I have this promise. I'm a citizen of heaven. Right? I have all these things, and yet I'm, I've got a lot of stuff down here. And it's, it's pretty good. I like it. And yeah, maybe I needed you for a while ago for this, but I've got this now. Maybe I needed you for this thing over here, but I've, I've, I've got plenty now, Lord. And now we, we feel like we're, we don't need him anymore. 
And we go around and we, we, just, we do our, our church thing and we build our buildings and we have our ministries. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, you're saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is the words of our loving Savior. So be zealous and repent. And then the next, the next verse here is one that's often used in, as a, an evangelistic text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In the context here, it's not evangelistic. It's a letter to God's people. And it's on the tail end of him saying, repent. Jesus is standing at the door. He's waiting. He's, he's ready for those of us who have turned our back to him, who have shut him out, who have said, I'll do it myself. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He's, this is about restoring fellowship with his people and spending time with him again and being with him versus, I, I get this picture of Jesus knocking. He's standing outside the church knocking on the door while we're all in here singing songs to him and lifting up his name, but our hearts are very far from him. He's like, what are, you, what are you doing? I'm not even in there right now, right? And that's not necessarily what happens here collectively or other churches, but that's in general, like what's happening in our hearts? Where, where is Christ, center of life or somewhere on the outside? And when's the last time you had a meal with him and just fellowshiped with him? And Jesus is knocking at the door. He's pursuing us. And he wants us to open back up and to stop thinking that we have it all together and to think that we can just solve our problems with money or with our own decisions or our own status or whatever it is. Instead, he wants us to come back to his word and listen to him, right? Isn't that what the father told us to do? To listen, listen to Jesus. This is my son. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What are his words saying? Jesus saying, you're, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind. You don't realize you can't see. You need my help. Come back to me fellowship with me. Do you see God's heart beginning and end for fellowship, for eating and drinking and sitting and being with him and the whole idea of the, the banquet in heaven that, that awaits us? This idea of fellowshipping with God for eternity? It's amazing. And, it, and, it's, and this is part of what the story is helping us with. God has made a way for us not just to be saved and go off and do our own thing, but to be with him, to bring him glory. And so verse 12 the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And I just want to pause just for a little brief second here. Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. We see the name Joshua here come on the scene and he's an assistant. And we know that Joshua has a much bigger role to play later on. Look at where he's starting, right? He's getting dry cleaning, he's taking calls, he's, 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 he's getting coffee, no, it's the wrong one, I didn't want cream in it. Like, he's, he's, he's assisting, he's with Moses, he's doing them, he's, he's not at the pinnacle, we all think we just need to arrive, and if I'm not there yet, I can't serve because I'm not this person, I haven't done this, versus just walking with someone, being around other believers. This is the, the discipleship model feeds everything that we do. Gary was talking about this. It's a chain reaction of changed lives. You can't do that unless you're with people, unless you're speaking, unless you're walking with them and growing with them and helping them and right, teaching them God's word. Everything that he's commanded us, we're supposed to teach others and make disciples and that's how we grow. 
And so if we're not in relationship with someone, whether we're discipling or whether we're being discipled, we are deficient in our growth trajectory. We just are, because that's the plan and the model that God has given us. Even here, we see it. He rose with his assistant, Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur, the two that were holding up his hands earlier during the initial battle, whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So Moses is back down, and he's telling everybody what to do, and here's, here's the guys you need to go to if you have a problem. I'm going to be up on the mountain. All right, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And isn't that, our, isn't that kind of the ultimate goal of the Christian life? We are called, right? we are loved by God before we were born. And he calls us and he saves us, justifies us, he sanctifies us. Ultimately, what's our goal? To be with him in glory, right? to be glorified, to be with him. And this is where Moses is going. It's a beautiful picture of, of our life with Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so earlier when I made the statement of why, Lord, why me? Look at me. Is there anything worth saving here? Is there any value here, Lord? I keep failing. Why would you do this, Lord? If you look at Deuteronomy 7, it's because why did he save Israel? Why did he choose Israel? Because he, he did. That was his will, and he loved them because he loved them. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amazing promises. In Hebrews 12, our last text here, text about the redemption through the blood of Christ. Christ is appearing as greater than Moses. He's our great high priest. And if you get a chance, just read all of Hebrews. I encourage you, read through the entire book of Hebrews. Um, but if you want to start in chapter 8 or 9 and then read through the end, that would be helpful as well as we, as we continue on about the instructions for the tabernacle. I don't know where to begin. I have to, I have to read all of it. Well, I'll just read uh, chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So this is Jesus. So that those who are called by called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood 
both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But because of it, we have assurance, right? Jesus has entered the holy places, and we can, we can approach the throne of grace now because of Jesus. We have access to our Father. We can spend time with him. We can fellowship with him. And then at the end of Hebrews, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God will equip you. He'll give you everything you need. He will work in his will. He will work in us to do things that are pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. But we need to be with him. We need to spend time with him. We need to submit ourselves to him. When it comes to this eternal covenant, there was a... Um, a section from a sermon that Charles Spurgeon gave envisioning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making their, their eternal covenant together. And it's based, it's based on Scripture, of course. There was some degree of hesitancy to try to peek behind the scenes. What, what is God doing or saying? But we're just revealing what God has said in his word. So I'll have, uh, I'll have Jeremiah come up and, and uh, we'll read this and pray together. So uh, Charles Spurgeon, imagining how this might have happened, he envisioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making their covenant. The first to speak is the Father. So just listen to, to your God, your triune God who loves you. The Father who vows to save a people whom he will love forever. This is that covenant in, in and of himself. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of stars, who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at the last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself, because I can swear by no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Do you believe that about yourself? The object of God's eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merits of his blood, To these I will give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Those are the promises of Scripture for us. Then it is the Holy Spirit's turn to speak, Spurgeon says. For his part, the Spirit promises to bring sinners to a knowledge of salvation. I hereby covenant that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them. And they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. Isn't this the promise of our Savior? Isn't this the promise of Scripture that Jesus is the author, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. He will, he will finish his work this is where faith comes into play for us as his people, right? God's doing this work, that he will do this work. We just need to turn to him, give ourselves to him. Finally, Spurgeon said, it's time for God the Son to make his covenant commitment. Jesus says, my father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time, I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people, I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness, which shall be acceptable to the demands of your just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. 
You shall extract their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death of the cross. I will magnify your law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of your law, and all the vials of your wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at your right hand, that I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those who you have given me shall ever be lost, but I will bring all of my sheep safe to you at last. Those are the promises of an eternal covenant from an eternal God that loves us, that loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises that you before we were born, before the foundation of the world, before we were born, you made a covenant with yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to do this work because you've chosen to love us. You've made image bearers, and we have fallen short of your glory. But by your Son, we have been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. Our sins have been atoned for. We have been covered by the blood of Jesus. And by putting our faith in Christ alone for salvation, we are saved. And with that salvation comes amazing promises of inheritance and of being sons and daughters of the Most High God. This, you're amazing, Lord. Father, you have created everything. You sustain everything in the entire universe, things that we don't even understand that we've never even seen. And yet, who are we that you're mindful of us? We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your words of truth that you see into our hearts, that you know, Lord, that we try to live this life apart from you. But without you, Lord, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us, Lord, as you are knocking for those of us who have been far, those of us who have turned our backs, those of us who have closed the door. May we open that door again. May we restore fellowship through repentance, confessing our sins to you. May you help us to live a life of gratitude and ultimately to bring you glory in all things. and Help us to enjoy you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.